Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director at the studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life, um, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share with you the tip of the week about how your dualities create confusion for you and others, getting integrated by becoming aware of your different or opposing needs and vulnerabilities and desires, negotiating within yourself and becoming unified. Um, bringing your thoughts, words, actions, and alignment. It's so crucial. Then I will share with you how to handle other people's opinion about you, being proud instead of afraid in the Ask Me segment. And then I will bring you um, Kathy Covey. She's a writer, editor, and a ghostwriter. You can find articles and blogs in the Huffington Post and Elephant Journal, among other journals, and we will be talking about her latest novel. Her novel's name is Ready and Sometimes Why. I love that name. We're going to talk about um, immigration, assimilation. We're going to talk about mental health, depression, addiction, and much more. So don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back with the tip of the week. Here's a tip of the week. Um, we are filled with dualities. When those dualities show up in our conversations, others get confused, lose trust, and get angry. As human beings, we are constantly experiencing dualities in ideas or behaviors. We can be conscious of some of these dualities, such as knowing what to eat, how to exercise, how to manage time, state that we're really committed to doing it, eh, but not take any action. There are times that we say our belief about a matter and not be conscious that we do the opposite, such as stating, mm, I'm honest and don't like people to lie, but lie constantly and have justifications for it. When our dualities only affect us, we tend not to have results that we want. When our dualities affect others, we lose the quality of the relationship. People can't count on us. They lose respect and trust, and they hold back and doubt who we are and our intentions. Teenagers start calling their parents a hypocrite at this time. These types of expressions of dualities create many marital arguments since a married couple makes many decisions together in all areas of life. Clarity and consistency 
become very important. Sometimes there's no duality. It is just a lack of clear communication. One part of the thought process has been shared while another part has not been expressed, which is still leaves the listener confused when they see an action that is not based on what they heard or expected first. So clarity in communication is important. However, the most important factor that would be a prerequisite for that communication is internal clarity. It is the awareness of our different parts needs, desires, and vulnerabilities that are so important. The process of negotiation between the parts facilitates the integration, therefore creating a sense of integrity and wholeness between our thoughts, emotions, and actions. When we become conscious of our impact on our surroundings and watch for others' reactions to our actions and seek feedback from others about us, we become in tune about our dualities and can begin to integrate our different or opposing beliefs. Our conversations and actions will then be based on a unified inner self and alignment between our thoughts, our words, our actions, and brings integrity and congruency within ourselves in relationship to ours. We can feel confident Others can count on us, believe in us, and know that when we say something, we're going to do it. And the whole, the most important factor is when you say you're going to do something, you're going to feel confident that you're going to keep your word. And that's when you're going to feel the most powerful. For the awareness integration skills, go to my book, Life Reset, The Awareness Integration Path, to the life you want. And you can find that in fujan.com or Amazon. I hear this question constantly, whether it's at work or whether someone's trying to date um, or just on a day-to-day -day aspect of, I'm afraid of how people are going to judge me. So I've stopped. I've stopped producing. I stopped sometimes breathing. What do I do? Because it is important for me to have the validation of others. But I can't just go on like this of constantly being afraid. You're right. You can't go on just like this or constantly being afraid because there's about close to 8 billion people on the face of the earth and each one of them are gonna have a different opinion and they all have the right to their opinion. The same way you are not gonna like everything and everyone and you probably have the right to yours. So what do we do with this anxiety that shows up? Well, first of all, know that it's normal. As a um, ancient human being and part of the herd, it was always very important for us to make sure that everybody liked us so that they wouldn't kick us out of the herds. And that was the concept of survival. And uh, we still operate from that place. And um, it is important for us to have the validation, especially of people who are important for us, right? Our family members, our coworkers, colleagues, peers in our career, the field that we are. 
we all have a desire to be significant and to be important and for people to like us and to love us. So you know that that's normal and that happens for all of us. It's a human condition. So don't think that you're the only one who goes through this. We all go through this. However, I think it is important for us to find a, a sense of, of who we are. And the more that we capture what are the greatness that we have? What are our vulnerabilities? Who are we really? And um, the more that we have a better understanding of ourselves and like ourselves, the less we will be inclined about how other people kind of think of us. It is important to know um, as a feedback level, if people are sharing feedback, which keeps coming to us as a negative feedback, maybe we need to consider if that's not how I wanted to present myself, maybe I should take it on and look at how am I coming across? What am I doing? If I don't wanna come across as someone who's a bully then, and I'm getting from other people that I am, a couple of people are telling me that they're afraid of me, maybe I should reconsider if that's not what I wanna do. So people's opinion matters in a way of acting as a mirror to us. So if there's a comment you hear often enough, maybe there's some validity to it. And if you think that you want to portray yourself that way, oh, well, well, your strategy is working. Guess what? Other people are seeing you exactly the way you want them to, whether it's a positive or a negative one. But if you're coming across based on other people's feedback, um, in a way that this is not what you intended, this is not what you wanted other people to think of you, then I would look at that feedback as a mirror and look at what am I doing? How am I acting that gives people that type of a perception? What is it? How is it that I actually do want people to think of me and come forward with it and then, you know, think that way, feel that way and act that way so that in a consistent time and as it keeps repeating, people will have that type of a thought process about you. However, there might be a lot of things that you might wanna do and some people won't like it. And if it works for you and if it works for your you know, highest intention and it works for your um, job, career, um, brand image, um, who you are, who you intend to be and you're gonna be out there <clears throat> acting that way, um, and you think you're doing well, then it's okay if some people don't like it and it won't work for them. I've heard from a lot of very, very successful people who are amazing and they do great in the world, that they still might have haters and people that just might be jealous of them and not like them, but they know what they create in the world and they continue believing and moving forward with you know, the creation that they have. If what you're doing is not harmful to you and it's not harmful to anybody else and you don't have an intentionality of harming yourself or others and even if you don't have the intentionality that type of a behavior talk words any of those it's not damaging anyone and anybody else it would then do it take a stand for it and if some people just don't like it it's okay it's their opinion. They do have the right not to like every single thing that you do. So I think that you might want to look at, do you believe in what you're doing? 
And if you are believing on your journey, if it's based on some value system that you want to implement in the world, in your relationship, in your work relationship, um, in your intimate relationships, in your family relationships, in a society, and you see that the impact of what you are doing, it is for the greater good. And the feedback that you get from people who are surrounding you are overall a positive aspect, a positive concept, and you see the impact in a positive way in people's um, life, that you are uh, making a difference by your action, then trust yourself, put yourself out there, create what you need to create. And if there are people who don't like it, it's okay, that shouldn't stop you. You can even ask people if there is an opportunity. What is it about what you said or you did that they didn't like? Listen carefully. Maybe there is something there that could benefit you and move you forward that could really enhance what you're doing already. And if you hear the comment, and you know, it's it's their opinion, but it's not necessarily relevant to your issues or what you want to create. You can always thank them and say, thank you for your opinion. I will take that into consideration. And if it's useful, you will. And don't worry about the social media conversations. I know that we all love to get the likes and we get very disturbed and upset when people just share their opinions that wasn't really requested from them. And they kind of badmouth us or, you know, without taking any responsibility or accountability, just putting whatever it is out there kind of take it in stride and just take it as it is. But know that you are the most important evaluator of what you do. You yourself and your integrity and conscious and looking at reality of what you create out there is the actual evaluator. So evaluate yourself. And if this is really what you want, then do it and feel proud. Do something that no matter when, when you are asked, when you are confronted, you can put your head up high and by confident, justify every action that you're doing. If that's the case, then do what you need to do and feel proud. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, and I am so excited to have Kathy Kave. She's a writer, editor, and a ghostwriter. You can find her articles and blogs in the Huffington Post and the Elephant Journal, among other journals. And we will be talking about her novel named and sometimes why. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is your... First novel. Yes, it is. The one that's coming out under your own name. There are a lot of other novels that you have written as a ghostwriter, but this is the first one that is being given to the public <clears throat> under your own name. So that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so how come, um, I'm going to go kind of like having, I'm asking you different questions about <clears throat> why this novel 
Why now? Why under your name finally? Well, I actually, uh, before I did any ghostwriting, before I was, um, I think I had, I had graduated college. I had worked a little bit, but uh, not much. And uh, I started this. And as I mentioned in my foreword, I actually just, it was late one night and I, I had a memory of packing up my toys or dolls or whatever to, before we were moving uh, from Iran to the United States. And this memory just came to me and I had such vivid memories of it. And um, I used to, and I still do journal a lot. So I, I started writing about, uh, about the feelings and just the events. And um, as more memories came back to me, I, I started writing more about them. And then I realized that this could actually turn into a potential novel. It really wasn't my intention, but once these memories started coming to me, I, I thought that you know this could possibly be a novel. So the anecdotes that were coming up for me were personal, but then I created a fictitious storyline, fictitious characters. And my goal at the time now, now that it's it's been a long time, I started this almost 20 years ago. It didn't take me 20 years to write or edit it. That's, that's when I started it. And um, so what happened was as I was uh, putting it together, it, it got to be extremely long. But my goal at the time was I didn't think there were any books or memoirs about the Iranian revolution. And I had read a lot of books on the Holocaust, obviously the Russian revolution, the French revolution. And uh, I didn't know that there were any books on the Iranian revolution. So at the time I thought my idea was very original. Obviously now 20 years later, it's not that original. There are a lot of um, books on the subject. So my goal has changed, but at the time uh, to answer your question uh, very briefly <laughs> after that long explanation is that my main goal was to have a book about the Iranian revolution. Well, there's a lot more in your book. Um, you go into not only personal uh, experiences of um, a young woman and the family that goes through the revolution, but you also talk so much about mental health and addiction in this book. And the part of why I was really uh, interested to have you on the show um, was because you bring so much of this angle to your writing. So first, I want to just share a little bit with our audience about the book, the novel, and you wrote uh, in 1979, an eight-year-old Miriam's world collapses when the government executes her friend's Ari's father, marking the beginning of the Iranian revolution and the end of her childhood innocence. And hoping to escape political prosecution, Ari joins Miriam's family when they migrate to Los Angeles. Her parents return to Iran, leaving Miriam and Ari to raise her younger two younger brothers in a real and dangerous game of house. And uh, Miriam sacrifices her teenagers for her family with Ari as her unrequired, unrequited love interest and uh, her own um, ally. And years following to the visit, parents force her and her brothers to stay. And then, you, you know, Miriam becomes westernized young woman in a socially repressed country, suddenly stripped her of her adult roles and, um, and Miriam's world becomes a never-ending party laden with black market alcohol and superficial friends. And we kind of go into then the tragedies and um, <clears throat> you know the world of prejudice, addiction, hypocrisy, and um, everything that happens from her um, in, in this 
in, in this concept. So I know that there's a lot to unpack in, in this book. So before we do the unpacking, um, the title, I loved what you wrote because I think that in the past we, you and I have spoken and you know what I think about English grammar. So, <laughs> um, it really, like I started laughing my head off and, and having an experience of the title, but I want you to share with our audience about the title. How come you chose this title? Okay, well, I actually don't know how I came up with the title, but I do use it uh, in three different ways. So at the very beginning of the book, I believe it's chapter two or three maybe, I explain it in the most basic way, which is what they teach kids in second or third grade. The vowels are A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y, the letter Y. So, um, in the book, one of the kids asks, you know, what that's all about. The teacher explains it. So even uh, as a young girl, the character jokingly says, and sometimes why, W-H-Y. So that's a very basic explanation, just so people know where that even comes from. But I use it in two different ways that becomes a motif throughout the book. One of them is um, her middle brother asks, uh, is talking to Miriam one night and they're having some quasi-philosophical conversation and the brother says to her, do you always think like this? And she says, sometimes, why? And he says, well, if you keep thinking like this and wondering about the whys of life, you're gonna drive yourself crazy. And at the end of the book, she does reach that conclusion in a very, uh, the hard way, basically. The third way I use it is um, she's uh, in the street one night and she sees a homeless man and then she sees an older elegant woman and she's conflicted as to why she envies both of these people, one who is, you know, the most downtrodden of us all and one who is, you know, older and has obviously from the looks led a successful life. And she realizes that she envies the homeless person even more because he actually, um, he actually knows that he can and has survived the worst of life. And she wonders, you know, how a woman, the, the elegant woman, how a woman her age has the will to live, how she has overcome so much. So, and again, um, as she goes through her journey, she realizes that she too, not that she becomes homeless, but she too can survive the worst of life and become that woman who has the will to live. So that uh, ties it into the end. So, and that there, it's complicated to explain how I use the why, but she asked them why, how does a woman uh, her age have the energy to live? Um, when, when, how, all this stuff, and then, and sometimes why? Why does she think, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, why do I envy her as much as I do the homeless man? So this and sometimes why is a recurring theme in, in three different ways that kind of, you know, it all kind of comes together at the end. But it also fits for me as a therapist, because I think that many people, um, ask why questions when um, <clears throat> when they know they're not going to get the answer. And sometimes my work in the therapy session is change those questions and change those why. So when I uh, first saw that, it, it brought for me as if, <clears throat> and sometimes why, um, it, 
sometimes we need to know the question to that why and sometimes asking those whys are um, dead end questions which holds us to a space where we need to change either the why or uh, the, the way that we're asking the question. Um, and I saw this also in your book, looking at a couple of different factors, which I think is very, very important to um, any age at any point, and we have it right now. One of the biggest conversation is, um, especially in the United States still, uh, the concept of immigrating and immigrants Obviously, there's a lot of controversial conversations about it, but I don't think that many people, unless they're immigrants and have come uh, based on adversaries and, and concepts that it wasn't just this, oh, I'm just going to go to another country because I have a better life and a job is waiting for me. And many people do that. Uh, you know, in a global industry, people just kind of migrate from one place to another, from a good thing to the better thing. But there's also a lot of times where <clears throat> immigration doesn't happen in that way of smoothness is because people have to leave their country for different reasons, whether it's poverty or whether it's revolutions or political reasons. Um, you know, life is just not possible in, in those situations anymore. And uh, people leave and they don't, many people don't understand the what shows up as an experience when uh, you do something as, um, as a choice versus something that although appears to be a choice, but it underneath it, it just feels like it's a do or die. Well, you touched upon a lot of important things. Let me just briefly touch upon what you said at the beginning, uh, what you were saying about the question why. And I do address that very briefly in the book that actually uh, most people when they ask why is one of the most uh, prevalent questions even if they don't they're not actually using the word why uh, human beings are very curious to find the whys of life which usually is about the past or about things that have happened and you're absolutely right we don't always have the answers and uh, what I try to emphasize in this book especially towards the end with the girl's journey is that she realizes that yes we are sometimes a bit better better off not knowing the answers and sometimes there are no answers and we just have to accept circumstances as they are. Now, uh, coming back to your uh, second um, question, uh, yes, absolutely. So there are different reasons for emigrating into a different, uh, to a different country. So in, in my personal case and with most Iranians and obviously in the book, uh, yes, it was a matter because of the revolution and I was actually there during the war. So, uh, but <laughs> something interesting came up when you said that, uh, and it's the same in, in the book. I, I was, uh, I think nine when we left and I, I had no problems being in Iran. I, I loved my life there and my parents were, you know, just, mainly because of the education system and you know my brother might have been drafted for the war uh, very very soon so they were the ones who had this fear of we have to leave this place uh, political reasons um I, I i didn't understand what, what the issue was i mean my mom was crying when she found that i had to wear you know the very strict islamic uniform to school and 
I didn't, I said, I'm the one who has to wear it. What, what is it to you? Why is it upsetting you so much? So as a child, I really didn't understand. I just kept hearing that they're doing it for my brother and I, and it's for our own good. But I personally didn't see any reason why we had to leave Iran. I loved it. And we can't, when we came here, it was extremely difficult adjusting. So it's uh, not until years and years later where I realized that they really did try to make the best decision for our education, for our future, for us to have freedom. But as a child, I didn't have that understanding. And I kind of felt like I was, uh, I was forced to leave with them. And I wasn't happy. I was doing it to make my family happy. So, but yes, it is very difficult, both for adults and for children, teenagers, um, different ages have um, different experiences with, with immigration. And I think it's difficult for all ages, not just for adults. Uh, it's, it's just as hard for children and teenagers. So you had to, a couple of different experiences of um, uh, immigration. One was as a very early childhood uh, to Europe and then coming to US uh, under the concept of you know, the revolution. Uh, what are some of the experiences that maybe you uh, experienced and brought it into the book from your experience as far as uh, an immigrant and what they have to actually experience. There's loneliness, there's depression, there's anxiety. Um, there's so much that shows up at, depending on where you go, what age you are, and uh, how you're received in the, in the new country, how you assimilate and acculturate yourself into the system. And, uh, you know, and the dis differences between knowing that you uh, have, have kind of like assimilated to a new system while you kind of like go back into another system, which, you know, when you went back to Iran or, um, um, or um, when we go back to our family systems, even if the family system is here. Um, and I've heard a lot from whether Iranians, you know, Chinese, Hispanic, and uh, you know, any of the uh, of the countries where they come in and they're very, very much like a family and a societal grip. And then the person who becomes the first generation or the immigrant, which becomes assimilated, but then the minute you know you go back to the same family or the same place, you go back to you know, it's like a train that takes you right back into. Uh, your old ways of being. And uh, sometimes we feel split about who we are. Our identity becomes really split between, you know, these two cultures that are constantly living with us, within us. Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's the biggest uh, dichotomy in the book and the biggest, I mean, one of the questions I ask at the end of the book, uh, at the blurb in the back is, will Miriam finally find home? So throughout her journey, uh, she never quite knows if she's American, if she's Iranian. Um, so again, you touched on so many different, uh, different aspects. So uh, I let me just say this. So I, I don't keep having to say I versus Miriam. Uh, Miriam is very much based on me. So um, especially the book is in three parts. The first part especially is very much autobiographical. The events that happened um, in Iran, um, the events that happened when we first moved to America, 
they are, I would say 95% factual. And it would surprise people. There's a scene I have when we first arrived to America in the, in the airport that uh, even though our visas were legit and there were no political reasons, my family had no political ties in Iran. And uh, it was a very, very skinny, pale, pale man. And that scene is in the book. And some people think that scene is 100% made up because it's, I'm trying to hammer in the home of how, how I saw the prejudice almost instantly, like the second we landed. Um, but it's not made up at all. It's verbatim. And I remember it very vividly how this man was talking to my father saying, why are you here? And my father said, for a better fate for my family. He brought up the hostage crisis. Don't you think uh, the Americans, you, you held hostage, didn't deserve a better life. And they had this uh, exchange of the man, he turned bright red and we, we were just standing in shock and he threw our passports on the floor and my dad picked them up. And my dad's a very polite man always. And he said, thank you, sir. And the man screamed, don't thank me, sir. I mean, and I was, that was my first experience of prejudice. And I, I didn't know about the concept and I was so confused thinking what did we do what have we done why is he treating us that way and um so that was my first experience actually landing in the airport so that's very much factual and the parts where i first uh, start going to school uh, some of it is made up but the the main premise of how there was uh prejudice and bullying simply because i was from iran uh, and I was 11 years old. It was uh, it was truly traumatizing for me because again, I had I didn't even know of the concept of prejudice, let alone experiencing it. And I took it very personally. I, I went to a school where there were a lot of Iranian kids, and they would get the same comments, and they would just brush it off and not take it personally. But I took it very personally because I was very confused. I didn't understand why someone would, you know, bully me just because of somewhere I was from. And, and I spoke fluent English, so it wasn't a, a language barrier. I had gone to American schools in Iran. I was very familiar with the American culture. So I was uh, extremely confused, extremely conflicted. And, um, and my parents were going through their own adjustments. So then it brought a whole other set of uh, uh, confusion and um, dichotomous uh, emotions in me because I was trying to acclimate to the United States, but I was also ashamed of being Iranian. And I was trying to, um, I, I tried not to add to my parents' burden. So I kept, I'd never told them what happened at school. I mean, not, I, I didn't get beat up or anything, but it was just verbal. And I, I never told them that I was going through anything. I said I was fitting in fine, everything's okay. But I just remember those years as being very traumatic. I, I have an example. This was much later, by then I was used to it. But I just wanna bring this, ex and this example as something that back then was, I wouldn't say acceptable, but we we had to accept it. And I'm just imagining something, someone saying something like this now. Uh, this was much later. I was actually a senior in high school by then. And I was in French class and uh, the French teacher was 
talking about Persians versus Arabs, but he was referring to Persians as Arabs. And one of the Iranian students said, um, Iranians aren't Arabs. And I, I'm not gonna use foul language, but the teacher in a class that had at least three or four Iranians said, Arabs, Iranians, same, the S word. And we just all just got quiet. I'm just imagining someone saying that or saying, so, imagine saying, you know, uh, saying to an African-American, oh, African, Cuban, same, I say, I mean, it, it was shocking then. But now when I look at the climate and, you know, uh, women, uh, people of different uh, sexual orientations, people of different nationalities, colors fighting for equality, um, where we thought there was equality and now we're seeing that no there's still a lot of xenophobia racism homophobia so you can just imagine how much worse it was then and now people are rising up and it's not acceptable to use racial slurs but back then we we just had to tolerate it we just had to accept it it's it's as if a, a black person again excuse me i'm not going to use the word it's as if saying to black people oh we're just going to call you the n-word and you just have to be quiet and take it that's how um for lack of a better word absurd and ignorant it was so and is is exactly. <laughs> nowadays people try to be politically correct and some people still have the prejudice in them and one of the things that i i talk about in my forward um i think everybody has a duty but especially as writers we have a duty to educate people and um all kinds of prejudice whether it's xenophobia or sexism or homophobia all of these come from ignorance yeah uh, so educating people, making them aware that we are all the same, no matter our gender, our skin color. So one of the things I was trying to do is break a lot of stereotypes about Iranians and say, you know, we, we are we are human. We have the same uh, emotions. We have the same thought patterns. We are the same. Yes. And I think this is more relevant today, again, with the political concepts that's happening between the US and Iran, I think it's important for people to get to know um, who we are as human being and not just categorize and stereotype uh, you know, from that ignorance that our job is to actually open up and see, you know, uh, and connect from heart to heart, connect from human to human with each other. Kathy, you also talked about in your book uh, with Miriam's uh, passage through uh, mental illness um, and mental health issues. Uh, one of the most prevalent one was depression and anxiety. And then from there, um, you know, going to get rescued towards um, alcohol and, and obviously drugs. And then uh, instead of getting rescued, you know, it's more and more into the deep end. Um, and then up. So can you share a little bit about, you know, what you wanted the, uh, the readers to know about mental health and addiction? Yes, absolutely. So um, again, Miriam is very much based on me. So in the book, uh, the parents leave uh, to live in, live in Iran. So Miriam and Ari, who is who has no relation to her, but she's sort of a brother figure, but they're not actually related. And she has two younger brothers. 
So at the beginning, uh, the middle brother has a drinking problem and Miriam Ari are trying to, you know, control him, taking him to therapy. And uh, the, the brother's therapist talks to Miriam at one point saying, you might want to seek some therapy for yourself too. You know, you are still a child and you've taken on these adult roles. And she's so in a parental role that she doesn't understand this. And as the book progresses, it becomes less and less about uh, the brother's mental health issues and addiction and Miriam herself. Um, she's always had the depression, anxiety and signs of addiction, but it's not until she goes back to Iran as an adult and she no longer has these adult roles that uh, she pretty much puts herself in a self-inflicted prison of alcoholism, taking pills, really her demons basically show up out of the blue to the point that even she's a little bit surprised and she has to realize that she needs to work on herself rather than continuing to focus on her family's issues or her family uh, dysfunction that she needs uh, to do work on herself. So going through uh, writing about Miriam and uh, kind of like fitting your own experiences, uh, what uh, what is it that uh, you want to share about depression and mental illnesses? Uh, I think my main goal is to, because this is, I, I'm not saying my target audience is Iranians or Americans, but I will say that especially in the Iranian community, there is such a stigma uh, against or about uh, mental illness, about being in therapy, about addiction. And uh, one of my main goals was to, not to say remove the stigmas, but again, to, to educate that this can happen to anybody, that anyone, any teenager going through the regular teenage emotions might fall into depression, anxiety, get into drugs. And it's, it's so crucial uh, for parents to be aware of what's going on with their kids and get them help as early as possible. Um, and obviously that doesn't happen in the book and she goes into full-blown addiction. So my goal was really to show that you know, this is this was a girl who came from a good family, a well-intentioned family. Her parents made a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say bad, but decisions that in hindsight were, were not to the best interest of the family. So this is not a girl who went out partying looking for drugs. She was using it to, to numb her emotions. And I just wanted to bring that to light that, you know, addiction, uh, mental health issues of any kind, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, obviously the more serious ones like schizophrenia, borderline bipolar, um, they need much more, uh, much more care of a psychiatrist, but um, let's just focus on addiction. Again, it can, it can happen to anybody. I, I hope I've done a good job of showing how it starts they're, they're very uh, subtle signs. And before you know it, it turns into full bone addiction without sometimes without you even realizing it. And really there is, there should be rather no shame about it. Uh, this is how many times have I mentioned this now? The character of Miriam is indeed based on me. So I have gone through these experiences and I always talk about how I, I really want to remove the stigma about addiction, but even I realize that 
I'm ashamed of it or I'm hesitant to talk about it. And yet I consider myself someone who really wants to educate people about this. So the stigma is so huge, the, uh, especially in the Iranian culture, especially in Iran, there's such, I mean, when you say the word addict, you might as well say, you know, the, the worst of the worst. I mean, so my goal was to, hopefully debunk some of those, some of the myths, some of the theories and um, get into the, the humanity of an addict. You know, it's not just about, it's not at all about the substance. It's, it's not uh, whether it's alcohol or pills in the case of Miriam or someone who's shooting heroin. It's not the substance. There are emotions, there are thoughts, there are experiences, there are traumas that lead up to these addictions. And the, if we address those issues earlier on in life, maybe, you know, we, we don't have to experience the hell of addiction. I think it's so important that you say this because first of all, the ratio of uh, depression and uh, anxiety and addiction has skyrocketed after the COVID and the pandemic. So um, I think that, you know, the one part of the immigration and uh, acculturation aspect of it can be fit to so many people who would read this book, but the other sides of, you know, the amount of people who are experiencing depression at this point because of changes, whether those changes are coming because of immigration or their changes are coming because of just phase of life issues or, um, or instances and things that are happening and changing or the past traumas as you were talking about in their childhood, which haven't been handled. Um, depression is going sky high. And um, so it is important for people to look at it and know that this is depression is actually one of those um, uh, mental illnesses that has a cure or manageable way of uh, handling things. There are a lot of treatment out there that could really support someone to completely you know, alleviate their depression or know how to manage it in a way that their life is functional. And then the other aspect of um, uh, the addiction and uh, you know, addictions to pills uh, is something that again, we're seeing sky high and um, you know, the, the recent and the latest deaths that are coming constantly with opiates and fentanyl would give us a cue that this is no longer just the minority conversation. This is, you know, the ratios are going so high and we need to open our eyes and be responsible for, um, you know, for what is happening and to know about it and to learn about it. And like you said, not just to kind of like shove a group aside and say, eh, you know, they're just addicts uh, versus really looking at um, what it is about addiction, how it gets created, how to you know manage it or dissolve it or let go and and you know heal uh, yourself in that way and what to do when you have family members who are suffering and going through this many of the um, many of the reasons where people fall fell into um, prescription medication addiction uh, was all from you know good intentions uh, people couldn't sleep, so they just wanted sleep medication and it wasn't working anymore. Or they were having anxiety and, you know, they were drinking a little bit or using something and, you know, calming themselves down. Or they went and had an um, operation and, you know, 
in the hospital, they were given opiates in, in order to bring their pain down. And then, you know, they kind of fell into that path. Um, and I think that the rate of usage is becoming so much younger. You know, I, uh, uh, I've been in the field of uh, therapy and, and addiction for almost, you know, over 30 years. And you see, really see the dynamic and the demographic change consistently. Um, and it's becoming younger and younger where there's an accessibility to uh, all sorts of pills and drugs and, you know, whether it's uh, synthetic or, um, you know, farmed, let's say. And I think there's a, a different kind of an openness with marijuana and all of that and mushrooms. And, you know, this is beside all of the other uh, pills that are coming out. So I think it's it's very important um, for people to get to know. And I think that most people also relate to a story much more because they can see themselves in the story and learn about all these details uh, that, you know, maybe us as therapists or psychologists or media uh, try to give information, which a lot of times people hear the information in, you know, in their head and they'll take it in as a cognitive process. But I think that the way you you brought it into the novel, not only people get it in the cognitive level, but they really get it in an emotional and an experiential level and they can relate to what is, whether they have gone through or have been having depression, anxiety and addiction um, issues or that they know someone and they can kind of like finally not only empathize, but to have an, a, experiential experience of someone who is going through that. Absolutely. And um, so I'll say this, uh, I think one of the most important things, I, I myself have a 17 year old now, uh, like you said, back, back in the day, drugs were considered, you know, illicit drugs, heroin, street drugs. And when I first became addicted to pills, and I even say this in the book, it may be just be one line, I didn't think of them as drugs because a doctor would give them. I would say it's a pill. It's not a drug. Now everyone knows that, okay, it's the same thing. When it happened to me, I truly did not realize I was an addict. So, and now it's like, as you said, it's all over the place. Opiates, uh, the epidemic is skyrocketing. I think one of the most important factors in addiction is honesty and communication within the family. Because another thing uh, with all families, but it's, again, especially with Iranians is they just want to turn a blind eye. Like, okay, I understand my child is an addict. Uh, what institution can I take them? What therapist should I take them? Whereas, um, an addict can get recovery by themselves, I mean, without their family, but it, the, the process is so much faster if the family gets involved because it really is a family disease. Even if only one person is an addict, every person in that family gets affected. They might uh, sometimes even be the cause. It's certainly something that they need to handle together. There needs to be communication. There needs to be honesty and, the reason I think it's so important for the stigma to be removed is so that 
children are comfortable talking about it without feeling like they're being judged or blamed or looked down upon, whether it's their family or society. So uh, I, and I hope that this book is a good illustration of how that doesn't happen and the catastrophe that can result when there is no communication and no family, um, family support in bringing uh, the child or the teenager out of addiction. Kathy, Kave, everyone, and the novel is And Sometimes Why. Kathy, in one minute, if you would like to wrap up and say some things that we haven't been able to say and you really, really want our viewers and listeners to know about this, about yourself or uh, the novel, And Sometimes Why. Uh... So again, my, my, my main goal was to debunk a lot of stereotypes about Iran to tell the story of a revolution, but uh, now my goal has changed and my goal now is for people to see these underlying themes of mental health and addiction, uh, xenophobia, homophobia, and um, and to put a quality book out there as far as the writing is concerned, which is a whole other discussion. But if I can even reach one person so that they can connect, if it's whether it's an Iranian or any other nationality that they have gone through the process of immigration, that you know that there's some there's something there that they can relate to, or it's mental health or addiction. If I can just reach one person, even if one person says, oh, I feel, I felt that way, or I feel that way, or this is happening to me. That's really my main, my main goal. Where can they find you and your book? Uh, they can, uh, or the, the easiest way is to go to Amazon, amazon.com and sometimes YWHY. If they just type in my name, it's probably the easiest because it's the only book I have. So Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, K-A-B-E-H. And then it's and sometimes why. So Amazon, uh, the ebook just came out, so um, they can get it as an ebook and as a paperback. And bookstores and libraries, they may not have it in stock, but if you ask for it, they will order it. So beautiful. So everyone, Kathy Kove, and uh, go get the book. It's an amazing book. You, she, I just want you to know that. Your style of writing is so beautiful. I started laughing and then there are areas that you really connect and then you get really engrossed in, wow, what's the next level? And then you cry and then you feel the pain and you agony and then you laugh again. And um, I just, I, I love the book. One of the lines that was just like, I was laughing for so long and I kept going and says, in my next life, I don't care if I come back as a dog, as long as it's a male dog instead of the... Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yes i actually said that in my head one time yes so, yeah, so there's a lot of these great lines there that just kind of like um you know there's this uh, calls off all the hypocrisy that is out there but in a in a beautiful and uh you know in your beautiful humor that shows up from also the pain so the pain is respected although the humor comes in and really like lifts it up so Thank you for doing that. I wish you the best success. Thanks. And I wish that everyone who reads this book really uh, connects and uh, sees how much uh, the, these are human conditions and issues about anyone from any uh, nationality and anywhere they are. So that uh, this, this book helps 
you, the, the reader, in connecting with all aspects of humanity, whether it's their vulnerability or the strength and the resilience that shows up from all of us. So thank you, Kathy, for uh, coming and sharing your book with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Zane. Thank you for having me. And uh, I appreciate all the compliments. And uh, I hope everyone just, even if they don't get anything from it, I hope they just get some entertainment and enjoy it. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So everyone, go get the book, And Sometimes Why, by Kathy Kabe. Thank you so much, all of you, for being with us and uh, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>